the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Cthulhu in the morning, Cthulhu in the evening, Cthulhu at supper time. If you're an East Coast academic dabbling in things you oughtn't to and want more Cthulhu, all you have to do is scream, which doesn't rhyme, but is true. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have unified the Koreas all by ourselves, this time on the podcast. Yep, we have part one of a two-part interview with Larry Korea talking about his great new short story collection, Target Rich Environment. It should not come as a shock that Larry is so good at writing short stories, and we'll talk about the entries in that great collection. Plus, we continue with more Korea, the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Korea's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. Happy Labor Day weekend. My granddaddy was a coal mine and steel mill electrician in Birmingham, Alabama, and a proud union man back in the day, so I kind of used this weekend to remember him and to grill up a bunch of stuff that perhaps better remained ungrilled. But we have fun. And September hits with a bam, and the new September Bane books are here starting on Tuesday. These include Target Rich Environment, a collection by Larry Correa. Together for the first time, here are 14 action-packed tales of demons, monsters, vampires, and cosmic horrors, too terrible to name, and the men and women who take them all down. Uh, toss in an interdimensional insurance salesman for good measure. You'll also find an elven princess from the pages of Monster Hunter International, which is not your normal elven princess, a samurai pirate with a blood vendetta against an extremely large sea beast, and a magic-wielding P.I. who walks the mean streets of Detroit, and much more. We'll talk with Larry more about this great compilation in a moment. Also out in September is Her Majesty's American by Steve White. The Union Jack takes to space. It's an alternate future where the British Empire never crumbled. The spaceships of Her Majesty's Navy work to keep the spaceways safe, but there are those among the stars who are not so happy being subjects of this British Empire. In the Tauchetti system, a cauldron of trouble brews as a terrorist faction of the rebellious Sons of Arnold attacks the Empire from within, and warships of the Theocratic Caliphate enter the system, prepared to do their worst to destroy the hated enemy. Yet standing against the coming anarchy and tyranny is one intrepid spy prepared to risk all for queen and empire. Target Rich Environment by Larry Correa and Her Majesty's American by Steve White are both available at booksellers everywhere. What a great September it's gonna be. This is part one of a two-part interview with Larry Correa discussing his short story collection, Target Rich Environment. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. I want to welcome Larry Correa to the podcast. Hello, Larry. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. Uh, Larry Correa is an award-winning competitive shooter, a movie prop gun master, and was an accountant for many years. He's the creator of the Wall Street Journal and New York Times best-selling Monster Hunter series. With his first entry, Monster Hunter International, as well as Urban Fantasy Hard-Boiled Adventure Saga, which is a lot to say, but that's what it is, the Grimnor Chronicles, which is really, really good, uh, good little series, with first entry Hard Magic, and epic fantasy series, The Saga of the Forgotten Warrior, with first entry, Son of the Black Sword, and upcoming very soon now, uh, probably available in in EARC very soon, now that we have, have got the copy edit done, is uh, House of Assassins, the sequel to Son of the Black Sword. But out now at Booksellers is Target Rich Environment, which is, I, I think it's the first short story collection that you've ever done. Is that correct, Larry? Yeah, this is. This is my very first short story collection, so really excited for it. Well, it says Volume 1 on here, so I assume that we're going to... Uh, well, we got more. 
Well, what it is, I pitched it to Tony Weisskopf, and I said, hey, Tony, I've written a lot of short stories. Um, could I, would you like to do a collection? She said, that sounds like a great idea. Uh, why don't you go ahead and compile what you'd like to do? And then I compiled over 200 and I think it was at the time, it was like 220,000 words or 240,000 words of short fiction. And uh, That's a lot, by the way, yeah. Yeah, he, he's like, I didn't realize you'd written that much short fiction. So we're going to go ahead and make this a multi-volume. Uh, we're going to do a couple a couple volumes of this. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I had to I had to split what I had in half, and I'm still writing new ones too. So I I actually I really enjoy short fiction, and I do a lot of it, and I've done it in a lot of different places. So um, most of my regular fans have never seen this stuff. Uh, they, they've appeared in different magazines or websites or places like that so it's kind of fun to have them all collected in a book for the first time yeah it's really cool and um a couple have never been in print i don't think is that no that's true yeah we have some some of these are all new uh are actually there's there's some that are all original um so wrote for this uh and then there's others that were audible exclusives so they um they existed in audiobook first before they were ever in print, and this will be the first time they've ever been in print, which is kind of cool too. Um, there's a, there's a couple like that, and then there's one in there that's an original that I wrote. Actually, I co-wrote with my daughter, uh, my my uh, my teenage daughter, and it's the first thing she's ever written professionally, which was that was, that was kind of fun to have that collaboration in there. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, I want to talk about that when we uh, when we get to it. Um, well, first, let me just ask you about the cover, which is. <laughs> pretty fun uh this is a a great kurt miller uh cover i believe H- have you seen the uh you have it right i do i've got a cop here in front of me um so for those that haven't seen the cover yet that's that's me on the cover uh, being an amazing action hero and kicking butt and taking names but um the backstory on this is kind of fun so uh what it was was um for previous collections and uh, anthologies based on a writer's works, uh, what Bain has done traditionally is they'll they'll take that author, uh, they'll take that author's image, and they'll make up some you know fantasy or sci-fi version of them. Um, and so, like for David Drake or the Onward Drake anthology, which I got to write a story for, which is pretty fun. Uh, on the cover there, David Drake was a Roman senator. I know for Eric Flint, uh, they had Eric Flint was a wizard. You know, they, they, so they do that kind of thing. So they thought, for Larry, what are we going to do? Um, so Tony wanted to do an action hero pose because, um, you know, I write kind of pulpy action stuff primarily. And uh, Kurt Miller uh, sent me a sketch. And I was like, first off, I don't know if I can, you know, physically get <laughs> into that pose, but I'll try. Um, but then for realism, the weapons that I have on me in the painting um, are things I actually own. I, I have all the everything on that cover I, I actually have. Um, and so the rifle I'm holding, I actually was holding for the photos we took and the, the Tetsubo, the Samurai War Club I have in my other hand, uh, I actually have one of those and I was holding that. But the funny part is we had to get a lot of photos for Kurt to work with, right? Well, that's a, that's a 12-pound rifle with the scope and the, everything on it, and then the, uh, the War Club's 16 pounds. <laughs> and on the cover, I'm holding them extended in my arms like I'm, you know, I'm roaring, right? Well, a 16-pound war club held outright in one arm <laughs> while your wife is taking lots and lots of photos, it starts to get really heavy. So um, I actually had to get my daughters to come out and hold my arms up like I was Moses <laughs> while my wife took all these photos because <laughs> my arms were just starting to quiver. And because the bridge is like, okay, not quite right. Hang on, there's a few more. Let me check. Okay, the light. Let me come over this angle. And I'm like, I'm dying here. <laughs> My arms are just quivering. Um, so, yeah. Then they, so then Kurt got that and then photoshopped my kids out of the pictures to use them. Um, but then he made this just really awesome painting. Um, it's, a, it's a fun cover. It's a really cool cover. Um, so I think people who don't even know who that is, they don't know that's me. <laughs> they don't know what this is about. They're going to pick it up and check it out. Um, but I love it. I, I think the cover is fantastic. Yeah. Well, you, um, as you comment on one of your stories in the collection, you, you do look like a very angry James Gandolfini. Um, <laughs> I do. I look a lot like James Gandolfini. Determined to kill something really bad. Well, the funny thing is, too, uh, we had to take like 100 
pictures of my face to try to get like a, a, a war face that Kurt could, Kurt could use. Because the funny thing is, I, I'm really squinty, and so like if I if I smile at all or do anything with my mouth, my eyes disappear. <laughs> and so Kurt's like, I need to see your eyes. It's like Kurt, I can't keep my eyes eyes open and make this awesome action hero grimace. But I finally got it. Um, and the funny thing is, that's not my war face. Like my fighting face is actually kind of kind of silly and giddy. I mean, I, I tend to. I mean, there's videos of me like you know doing fighting things out there, and it's always like I'm I'm happy. <laughs> it's just the face I make. Um, but yeah, so you know, Kurt's a good artist, and um, you can tell you can tell he had a, he had a good time with this one. So, and we already yeah. have we have the cover for the second one picked out too, um, because it was this was a spontaneous thing. But we, but Tony's got the pose. We were at a book signing in Texas, huge book signing. We had a, we had 150 people show up at this book signing in Texas, and. Um, one of the guys in the audience had brought a stuffed manatee. If, if you know my fans at all, you know it's kind of a, a running joke with us is that my spokesman is Wendell the manatee, right? Mm-hmm. So he brings his big stuffed manatee, and he wants me to pose with it. And so I go, what the heck? So I, I do the Atlas Shrugged pose. You know, so I'm kind of like all hunched over, and I have the manatee. I'm holding the manatee above my head. Well, then my wife was there in the front row, and she saw that, and she thought it was hilarious. So she runs out of the audience, and and – and throws herself on the ground and hugs onto my leg like it's a Boris Vallejo, um, you know, kind of Conan, Frank Franzetta pose. Mm-hmm. So, so a bunch of people in the audience, it was just spontaneous, and a bunch of people took the photo. And Tony Weisskopf, when she saw that, she's like, yep, that's the second cover. That's, that's what we're doing. So I'm going to be Atlas shrugging it with a manatee and my wife, you know, dramatically holding onto my leg. <laughs> well, that's very cool. And the stuff of <laughs> it's pretty awesome, actually. I have the weirdest the stuff of teenage job. fantasies everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you finally got to be a friends out of cover. That's <laughs> like, do, is there really anywhere else to go, Larry? After this, it is so Conan, it's ridiculous. But, but yeah, so that picture went all over the internet. I just it, it was just because it was really it was fun. It was obviously you could tell we were. You can tell in the photo we're having a good time, and you can tell the Bridget was having a good time with it. And so, uh, yeah, I'm sure they'll just make the manatee look bigger and more dramatic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, from from what I hear of you and Bridget's exercise routine, she should be the one holding up the giant. Thing. <laughs> so. no, she's cardio, and um, she doesn't lift weights, but my gosh, she runs and runs and runs and runs. Um, yeah, she's a she's a runner. She's she does she does half mar- half marathons for fun. Um, the, the joke was at Liberty Con, she ran a 5K on accident. Because um, what it is, is one morning in Chattanooga, uh, she just went out for a jog. And it turned out there was a 5K going around uh, that neighborhood. And she didn't realize, she's not, you know, we're not from there. So she ran around the corner, and there was just a bunch of people running. And so she just started running with them. And it turned out she entered a 5K on accident. And she just, you know, just ran that uh, to warm up oh, and then came back. And, just, yeah, she's like, hey, I guess I... I guess I ran a 5K this morning. I'm like, well, that's great. <laughs> so that's my wife. She she runs races on accident. Um, yeah. yeah. She's cool. kind of a beast. Yeah. So, uh, well, let's talk about the stories. Um, the first story you lead off with is um, is is Tanya, uh, Princess of the Elves, which is... Um, Maybe I you know I don't know if it's the strongest story ever wrote, but it's probably the best known and the one that sticks with readers the most of anything because I hear about it from from readers. I mean, it's a great story. Don't get me wrong. It's just uh, it's just cool idea. Well, it's funny because it's it was originally started out just as a as a joke on my blog because uh, well the very first scene was actually a, a, basically what turned out to be a deleted scene from Monster Hunter Alpha. Um, because originally in Monster Hunter Alpha, the main character in that one is Earl Harbinger, and he had a sidekick, basically, it was Tanya, Princess of the Elves. You know, she would who'd run off, she'd snuck off from the trailer park, um, you know, to pretend to be like this, be, you know, badass wizard, basically, to help these professional monster hunters. Um, when really she's just kind of a clueless girl who doesn't really know what's going on, and she's just trying to, you know, she's trying to get away from Mama. Well, so I wrote that, but it, she was too funny. She, the character was hilarious, and she's just really funny to write. Uh, and that actually turned out to be kind of a dark and serious book. And so I was like, mm, okay, 
she's too bubbly and happy for this book. So I'm going to have to just, I, I couldn't use Tanya in it. So I took Tanya out. So I had this little deleted scene. And so just for fun, I stuck it up in my blog. And it kind of starts off and it, and it leads up to like some interesting happening. And actually that one was fun because Tony uh, Weisskopf again, she was reading my blog and she saw that. And she's like, you know, this is, the, this is the great beginning for a story. Why don't you finish this short story and send it to me so I can publish it? I was like, yes, ma'am. Um, so I wrote up the rest of the story, and at that point, I brought in another really popular character from the Monster Hunter universe, and that's Edward the Orc. Um, and Edward is Edward is hilarious. He's awesome. And uh, so Ed, Edward the Orc and uh, Tanya the Elf are basically the MHI's great love story. It's our, our answer to Romeo and Juliet, two warring clans, <laughs> you know, uh, a love. Yeah. Well, tell us, a tell us love how else. by culture. Yes, that's that's so touching. Uh, it is, and so it's it, it's a really popular. And one. this and is the Tanya moment and, that uh, yeah that that Tanya see that they fall in love here. <laughs> and I love how they do it too. It's so cheesy. She's just like, "Hey, call me," you know. And it's, it's just this this all these like horrible stereotypes between the two groups because you know elves hate orcs and orcs hate uh, hate elves, and they believe all these crazy things about each other. Uh, and so when they when they're forced to work together, it's just like, you know, he, he's like, you, you know, you're not allowed to steal my soul. And she's like, well, you're not allowed to cut my ears off and put them on your elf ear necklace. <laughs> and and both of them are just like, no clue what is going on. Explain a little bit about the what the elves are like in the Monster Hunter universe and the orcs, because they're a little different than Tolkien, aren't they? Oh, yeah. So for people who have not read the Monster Hunter series, how I've set it up is that um, uh, elves and orcs live among us, but in secret. Uh, and elves specifically, American elves anyway, are kind of like the um, the black sheep of the family, if you will, compared to European elves, which are more like what Tolkien wrote about. Um, so the the elves that wound up in America, they're the, basically they, they live in the Enchanted Forest trailer park. Um, <laughs> the backstory on that was uh, many years ago. Uh, was when I was writing the very first Monster Hunter novel. When I came up with the elves, I was uh, reading, or, or I was writing. We were in the bedroom, and I was writing on my laptop. And my wife was reading a fantasy novel, and she throws the book down and just kind of gives this exasperated sigh. And I said, "Honey, what's wrong?" And she goes, oh, "I'm just sick of this this novel because it's just doing the same old thing. And that it's got elves, but elves are always the same. They're always these." you know, long-lived and magical and beautiful and one with nature. It's like, I'd like to see people do something different with elves instead of just rehashing Lord of the Rings over and over again. Why, why, can't, why can't we have redneck elves or something? And she said that, and I was like, oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> and I immediately, I, I mean, I, I used to live in Alabama, so I, I, know my, I know my stereotypes about rednecks, and I was like, all right, let's have some fun. And uh, I loved it. And so I just started writing Redneck Elves and lived in the Enchanted Forest trailer park. Um, also, they're hoot, but then they, if you have elves, you've got to have orcs. And so the orcs were, um, I made them kind of like, uh, <laughs> my orcs are cool. They're basically heavy metal. They're, they're just metal heads. Um, but the orcs are just super cool. And uh, the, But they're a, they're a very proud warrior people, right? And so you put these two groups together, and they just hate each other. they got this ancestral animosity. And so throughout the Monster Hunter series, it's kind of a reoccurring thing where I have to throw elves and orcs together. But um, Tanya and Ed are kind of the, uh, the two characters that reach across the divide, if you will. Um, so, yeah, it's a fun little story. It's just a little silly action-adventure story that introduces this one character. Um, but it, it's, it's a blast because she's gone on to be... She's, uh, Ed was already in the series, but Tanya's gone on to be in like three other books since then, uh, make appearances. So she's she's rather popular amongst the fans, and I've also had I've also had Tanya Tanya the Elf cosplay um, show up at different conventions I've been at, um, <laughs> which is always kind of oh man, yeah, as you can yeah. imagine. <laughs> Down to the tattoo, the tramp stamp, or <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, tramp stamps, uh, the elf ear. I mean, usually the big hair, uh, tank tops. Um, I've had them with the pink camp. They've done the pink, the pink deer hunter camouflage, uh, uh, bows and arrows, even. 
No, yeah, yeah. So I've had, I've had quite, and I've had, I've had a whole family one time. They did uh, the Queen of the Elves, Elmo the Elf, and Tanya the Elf. One time uh, showed up to a con. <laughs> we had some great photos together. The Queen had curlers in her hair and was wearing a muumuu. Uh, and she had wow. funny slippers. <laughs> that is, I mean, that is really when you know you've made it as a writer. When yeah. Yeah. Somebody cosplays as your uh, secondary uh, characters. <laughs> That's great. No, just because it was kind of a fun. It was a kind of a fun, lighthearted one to start out with. Um, yeah, so that, that that was a good one. I was I was happy to finally yeah. get that in in uh, in, in print because just previous to that had just been on the band webpage. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the things that we find throughout the book is this, and you know, and in your Monster Hunter series too is. That, I don't know. You are you have a strange preoccupation with Cthulhu mythos um, that just creeps into everything you write uh, in one way or another. That uh, no, I, and, I, share, you do some... I share a birthday with uh, uh, H.P. Lovecraft. We're both born on oh, August twentieth. Yeah. yeah, I guess that explains a lot. Um, and, and with me, it's H.P. Lovecraft and Rand or and uh, Ron Paul. We all have the same birthday. <laughs> I see. It explains mm, a that lot. does explain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, well, I did. So... I did do a Cthulhu story in there. Yeah. Yeah. This is a this is a science fiction. Right, in case anyone you know wonders, Larry Korea certainly does write science fiction, and Dead Weight Streaming is is a science fiction story. Um, that is also a sort of Cthulhu story, right? Yeah. So that originally appeared in. Um, in an anthology called Space Eldritch. Um, so the idea was it was horror stories or science fiction horror stories that were inspired by the Lovecraft mythos. Um, and so I, I got invited to be in that. I thought I sounded like a lot of fun. And I'm not primarily a horror writer um, in that I, I, can, I can write scary stuff, but primarily I, if I'm writing horror-type tropes, they tend to turn into action-adventure stuff, because I, I wrote, write protagonists that are kind of action people, usually. But in this case, I wanted to go straight up. I wanted to see if I could write a truly creepy, scary horror story. And I think I, I, think I pulled it off, actually. I, I, got, I heard um, from um, a bunch of people that are like hardcore horror people that just were really kind of blown away by this one. Uh, Michael Brent Collings is a fantastic horror uh, horror author. He, he's written some some great books, and he's really good at horror. And he 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 loved it. He he was kind of surprised. He's like, "Dang man, stay in your lane." <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, that one that one I enjoyed. I I um I used up years worth of every creepy dream image I I had. You know, like every bad dream I've had for years. I think I shoved them all into this book or into that story. Well, it's a story about a guy who who has only dreamt once in his life, right? So what what it is? Well, he was normal up until a point, but the way I've set up star, space travel is that um, they're kind of slipping uh, in the space between worlds when they're traveling from system to system. And uh, they discovered early on, as mankind uh, after we discovered this technology to you know faster than light travel. Um, you cannot be awake during it. If you are awake during it, it's extremely mentally damaging to your to you. and and so so sp- first early space travelers um, who went faster than light uh, experienced all sorts of psychotic issues and breaks and that kind of thing. So we had to develop basically systems that uh, uh, of stasis where they would basically they put you in a medically induced coma um, for for space travel, um, and so. But there is this one really rare um, genetic condition that would affect, like, we're talking one, one in a billion people uh, would, would wind up with this condition where they put you in, into the stasis and put you in this medical coma, but they basically stay awake for it. Um, and so this guy was one of those unlucky few, and uh, he's a xenobiologist. So what happened after this is just this syndrome it makes it so they can never dream again. And as you know, that's, that's really, you know, the human brain depends on that. Um, and so he is the one person on this colony planet who has this medical condition because of you know, the space travel accident that he can't dream. But then uh, this archaeological dig uh, 
finds something, and it starts affecting the dreams of everyone on this colony world. And uh, it gets really weird. But the story is told from the, from his perspective um, as the as the one you know the 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 one-eyed man in the land of the blind here and see what's going on yeah. and then it's simultaneously told by from the perspective of the um the spaceship crew that comes across this now depopulated mysteriously depopulated colony world um i don't want to give too much away but yeah i i went i went full lovecraft in this one <laughs> yeah well it's a group of scholars who open up a door to uh a group of scholars who open up a door to another dimension that they probably shouldn't have done, something like that. Right? You can you can specifically use the words non Euclidean geometry, you know, in a, in a serious sentence. <laughs> it's like yes, cool. Uh, no, I had a I, I I had a lot of fun with that one. I um, I'm proud of that one. That's that's a story I'm really proud of because I, I got to push myself into playing into some other genres that I don't normally. Well, let's. Uh, I don't want to go through every story, but there, the next story in the collection is is Swayothi City, which is um, uh, it, it just the first four stories just demonstrate the, the the huge range of stuff that you are interested in writing and that you've written. Um, and this is uh, this is just straight up action adventure, uh, military action adventure, right? Um, although it's it it's the beginning of your very cool. Um, well, what it was is uh, it's for the it's part of the Dead Six series that I wrote with Mike Coopery, uh, Dead Six, uh, Swords of Exodus, and Alliance of Shadows. Uh, one of the main characters in that is a fellow named Lorenzo, um, and so this story was kind of like Lorenzo's origin story uh, that I wrote, and because we never really get his true origin story in any of the books, it just never came up. Whereas the other main character, we did get his origin story. So this was just kind of me playing catch up. And I wrote this short story to tell that. And it just turns into this wild um, kind of action adventure running gun battle through an African city, you know, during a military coup that's gone horribly wrong. Um, And it's also going back to like this character's youth and, and where he comes from and why he is the way he is. And I got to have a, a car chase between a, BMP armored personnel carrier and a and a Toyota pickup truck through a shanty town. <laughs> it's this this one was just it was a pure action uh, pure action flick story and uh, uh, one of the things I was trying to do with this series, like you said, is like um, when I was starting out, I didn't want to be just the monster guy. I didn't want to be just the monster hunter guy. I wanted to be able to do whatever I wanted. And it, and, and luckily for me, you know, my career's worked out that way that. I can write all sorts of different genres and stuff now, but um, one of the fun things about short stories is before I commit to a full-length novel is I can go and I can experiment in another world and another genre and, and, and kind of get the vibe for it. And, um, yeah, so so that was one of the things I tried to do in this collection is, I mean, I, we, we probably get into six or seven different genres and uh, just try to have a good time with all of them. But yeah, that, yeah, that one well, this is, is definitely the, the gunfight one. Yeah, and it's also uh, Lorenzo. We we learn a lot of his backstory in this story. It's kind of an origin story for Lorenzo. Oh yeah, well because he's got a he's got a dark past. Um, he's got a messed up past with one little glimmer of like decent loving humanity in there, and he gets that taken from him. And uh, it's like like this guy this guy is just he's built for revenge um, basically. Um, he, Lorenzo is wired for revenge, which is one of the things that makes him really cool in this series. Um, cause really the, 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 the three book series, his character arc is he, he learns how to become a decent person <laughs> through the events of, through the horrific events of these books. Um, he actually kind of finds people, um, that he, that he comes to love and then things that he comes to fight for, you know? Um, but this is him. This is early Lorenzo. He is a hard dude. But yeah, yeah. He's an angry little very man. Very good. <laughs> very good at what he does too. Oh man, he is so lethal. My technical advisor for that series is a, a friend of mine, a friend of me and Mike Cooper's, um, who was a lieutenant colonel, Army Special Forces, and uh, after that he was a uh, went into federal law enforcement. He worked for a very specific kind of. He had a very specific kind of job that uh, 
he's basically kind of like a real life Jack Bauer. You know, he did a lot of really crazy stuff. And uh, so he was our technical guy and we would send, we would send him these scenes and he would just kind of pick them apart. And like, like he, for dead six, I mean, I know my stuff pretty well. Mike knows his stuff pretty well. I mean, Mike's a, Mike's a combat veteran. Mike's EOD. I mean, I was just a cake eating civilian, but I, I pay attention. And so we thought we'd done our homework. We sent this book over. He sent back 10 pages of detailed notes uh, of just tactical stuff. Um, change this, change this. We wouldn't use that kind of weapon here. We'd use this. Oh, in this situation, we'd shoot the guard dogs first with suppressed weapons. All right, you, you, don't use, you don't use explosives under the water line of a yacht when you're breaching an engine room. You cut a hole in the toilet with a Broco <laughs> torch, and then you throw in, uh, in flashbangs. We're like, oh, okay, <laughs> whatever you say, man. And so, uh, so, so the technical stuff in that series is pretty spot on. Um, we've gotten a lot of compliments from from people that are, you know, face shooting trigger pullers for a living. I mean, that's their, you know, professionals. And uh, we we get a lot of compliments on our technical accuracy for that series. We we really did our homework. Yeah, and it's a great series, um, and it also is fun in that you indulge every conspiracy theory that's ever been <laughs> invented in it. <laughs> well, and it's funny, too. We did um, – because me and Mike actually, that was part of the thing in the book, was we decided we we're going to have a world of where a lot of the conspiracy theories were true. Were true. As we, that was kind of our world building. So it's not – we don't really draw a lot of attention to it, but it is kind of an alternate history, and it's a little sci-fi, but it's like you know, 15 minutes in the future kind of thing, sci-fi. But um, really what we did is we looked at it, and we kind of discovered that there was like basically left-wing and right-wing conspiracies of how they saw the world. And uh, what we did is we took those, and we made two big secret groups that were actually at war. Um, it was So there's like secretly – there's a group called Majestic, and there's a group that's basically the Illuminati – and the two groups are warring for secret control of the of the world uh, and all the power and the politics and stuff behind the scenes. Um, yeah, so we we had a lot of fun with that. And what it was is Mike used to work nights, and so he listened to a lot of coast to coast AM. <laughs> and in fact, in in this um, in this series, we have one guy who's the conspiracy theorist in this in this book that's all about conspiracy theories. Um, but he listens to a show, a, a late night radio show called "From Sea to Sea to Shining Sea," and the uh, and the and the, the host's name is just uh, the the George Norrie, but um, with his <laughs> the letters rearranged to like Roger Gioni. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, little little hat tip there to late night conspiracy radio. So. Uh... The next story in the collection is a really early story of yours called The Bridge, which I thought was really fun. Um, it, it's it's almost allegorical, not quite, and it's just a, it's a fun story. Um, it's also, and it's not really set in any of your in your worlds, but it's uh, it's very Korea. Uh, that story was actually um, for um, uh, and the editor was Mark Tasson, and what it was is he had put together a role playing game setting. Um, and I knew Mark Tasson from, he, he used to run the, uh, Gen Con writer symposium and, um, great guy. And, and he approached me about doing a story in his game setting, um, for this anthology that he was putting together. And, uh, you know, I get asked for that a lot, but I was like, well, you know, let me check it out and see what I think. And so he gave me all the source books and I read through those. And it was actually kind of cool. And, um, he had a couple things that like people hadn't really, you know, other authors hadn't really seen talk out what they wanted to write about in this game setting. It's just a, it's just a Dungeons and Dragons kind of, you know, setting. Um, and so, but one of the groups was um, kind of these world hopping Romans <laughs> and uh, they had amongst them, they had kind of like this order of mystical fighting um, arts where they had different competing schools, kind of like a Kung Fu movie. And I read that and I was like, okay, that is like super cool. And then at the same time, there was this other group that was like these 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 creatures that lived out on the tundra in this miserable setting, this miserable, horrible, cold, bitter place, and they worshipped this god of suffering. And so it was like, uh, and and so like as you suffered, it just it just showed your devotion to the god. You know, it was dross god. You know, it's like, and so every every time something miserable would happen to these guys, it's like, oh, that's just you know, that's just the will of dross. This is good. It's good that my village burned down and we're all starving. This is what he wills, you know. And so, 
they had these two ideas, and so that gave me the idea for two characters, and I put these two characters on a collision course. Um, yeah, and it was just, it was basically that's um, the plot of that there is kind of like an old kung fu movie only set in a fantasy world. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was a good one. Well, I was going to say, because well, uh, I was in that anthology with quite a few like big name, right? And I was, I was fairly new still when this came out, if, if I remember, if I recall correctly. I have to go look. But I was in there with some like big name writers, and I just remember in the reviews, a lot of people saying, hey, this Korea guy had you know, like, a really good story. This were, A lot of people said, this is the best one in here. And I was like, whoa, maybe I can write short stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed it. It's got a, uh, it's got a, it's kind of like a Billy Goat Gruff with swords, <laughs> in a way. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it very much was. So a lot of times on short are, stories, you don't have a lot of time to, to you know, there's no, you don't have a lot of room to work. You know, you're, you're limited to you know five or ten thousand words, and so you got to get to like the nugget of the story really quick, um, and so that. That one worked because I just had it had two interesting voices, and I just got to smack them together and see what happened. And uh, yeah, so that one worked. That one worked really well. I, I'm, yeah. I'm really proud yeah. of that one. It's well, a, it's a really you know, fun I keep story. I'm proud of that because I didn't put anything in here. I, I didn't put any short stories in this collection that I didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Always you know, good a collection's expense to show off. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and you know, then people uh, they hit a clunker. Sometimes they won't read the rest of it. So this has got a lot of strong stuff. So now we get to the uh, then you get to the Grimnor section. Um, you you I mean this is my favorite of your worlds. Um, I really like the uh, the the books and um, these two stories are um, one is kind of early in Jake's career and the other ones after the, the series is over even, I believe. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and the, the first one and actually in the, in the second volume, there's more of them too. Um, but yeah, the first one I did, um, it was a kind of a prequel story and we actually did this on the Bayon website to advertise, uh, for the upcoming release of one of the, one of the, one of the war, or one of the novels, I can't remember which one of the series we did that for, but it was a prequel story where it was Jake Sullivan, hard-boiled private detective, uh, that was Detroit Christmas, and this was a really popular story. And then um, also, yeah, you guys did the full cast audio drama of that for the the Bay and Free Radio Hour was was a lot of fun. That's right, and it's available on Audible if anybody wants to listen to it. Yeah, we. Um, the Audible, and then uh, they got Bronson Pinchot to narrate it, and uh, you know, Bronson loves Grimoire, and he he just has such a good time with that with that series narrating it. But this yeah. was just my um, kind of little you know salute to Raymond Chandler esque hard boiled detective stories. Um, it's Jake Sullivan, you know, hard boiled PI solving a mystery uh, on Christmas in Detroit, you know, while tracking down some hardened magical killers. You know, for for the Bureau of Investigation, you know, because he's uh, he's got a deal. That's how he got out of prison early. Is he has a deal to track down magical killers when asked to. Um, and it's got you know, it's got a femme fatale angle in it. Uh, yeah, explain a little. Uh, explain a little about Jake's power and the magic of the series, if you if you will. So the, the the series it starts with a novel, Hard Magic, and then Spellbound and Warbound, and then there's three more coming that are that are set a generation later. Um, in this world, uh, it's it's an alternate history in that magic appeared in about the 1850s, and uh, how magic works in this world is kind of a symbiotic relationship. But it like you someone would be born with a magical power, uh, and they would develop it throughout their lives, but is only about one in a thousand people had some form of magical power. And, uh, and they had it to varying degrees. And the way the magic system works is anybody who has magic has one little area of the laws of physics that, they're, that they can mess with. They can kind of bend the rules. And um, each type of power basically got a, a cool 1930s-style nickname, you know, hard, hard-boiled description. But um, our main character in the series 
one of the two main characters in the series is a guy named Jake Sullivan, or Heavy Jake Sullivan, because his magical power is messing with gravity. Um, Jake can alter the 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 force of gravity, um, the direction of gravitational pull. Um, he, so basically, he can make things lighter, or he can make things heavier, uh, and do so in a lot of really creative ways. We get some really cool action sequences in this series, too. Um, but the, the way it kind of works out with everybody having one area that they can tweak, it, it, it almost works out like superpowers, and that the, the, this person can do this kind of thing, which makes for some really interesting um, interesting combats between them. But but Jake's background is he was uh, he's a, you know he's a World War One combat vet. Um, he uh, was a private detective. Then he wound up going to prison for uh, for um, stepping in and killing a very corrupt sheriff in Louisiana. But he goes to prison for a prison for magical people, which is not cool. And he uh, basically spends years in gladiatorial combat there. He gets out, and now he's working as a detective again, a private detective again. And on the side, the reason he got out of prison early was that he also takes specific jobs from J. Edgar Hoover to track down extremely dangerous magical people and take them out. And, uh, yeah, so great character. And that series was a blast to write. Um, still, uh, it's a trilogy. Still, still some of my most popular books. Um, people really enjoy those a lot. So, yeah, I really love the Hard Magic, and I love that series. The Grimnor Chronicles, I love that series. Well, you put Jake in a tuxedo for uh, Murder on the Orient Elite. Um, yeah, so that one actually takes place, I believe, seven years later. Or so it's it's old. It's an older Jake Sullivan. It it and in fact, I put a little warning in that one at the beginning in the intro, saying, you know, if you've not read the series, if you've not read the the Hard Magic series. You know, read it first before you read this, because there are going to be spoilers, because it does take place years later. But on that one, it was really cool for me to go back and take this character that I loved and kind of revisit him and see where he's at today and what's going on. Um, so a little a little older, more uh, – more, uh, he's actually – he's had some good things happen to him <laughs> for the first time, and a, and a guy who's had a really hard life. Um, and that one, as you can tell by the title, you know, Murder on the Orient Elite, what I was going for. Um, but it's a, it's a mystery aboard a, um, uh, a luxury dirigible crossing the, uh, crossing the Pacific Ocean. Oh, wait, no, crossing the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, there's, a, there's spies and, you know, communist spies and Imperium spies and all this stuff going on. Yeah, you even you stick a couple of historical... Uh, alternate historical characters in there. Yeah. Some more well known than others. Um, but one fun thing about this series, because it's an alternate history, is I'm able to go through and take various you know, historical figures and, and stick them in there in different ways. Um, some pretty famous ones um, that went in different directions, and some that are actually not real well known, but are actually you know real life people. And uh, yeah, they. But in Murder of the Oriental Elite, I got a couple. Actually, I got a big one in um, in Detroit Christmas, the the one, last one we were talking about. But very few mm-hmm. people catch it. Um, I don't know if you caught it. I don't want to spoil it, but one one of the characters in there is a major. <laughs> it's actually a big deal, a big deal character uh, or a big deal real historical person who meets a uh, who meets an untimely end. <laughs> That was part one of a two-part interview with Larry Correa discussing his new short story collection, Target Rich Environment. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. 
The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Of the three who remained, Yuganta, five-year acolyte, was their oldest and most experienced student. He was the proud son of a chief judge in the capital, from a long and accomplished lineage, so it was rather shameful when he ran away and left Ashok and Devadas to die at the hands of the monsters at the summit. Get back here! Devadas shouted, but Uganta was already fifty yards away, clumsily sliding down the rocks, panicked and trying to escape. Coward! When they'd first risen out of the snow all around them, Ashok had thought that they were only men dressed in the pelts of some white-furred animal. Only as they'd gotten closer, he'd realized their visible skin was the color of Blue River slush. At first, his tired mind thought their bodies were painted like a festival girl. But then he realized they had no faces. Their faces beneath their hoods were nothing more than a thin blue membrane stretched tight over a skull. Oceans, Devadas swore. Uganta had been on point and seen them first. No wonder he'd run for his life. The creatures hadn't made a sound, but they were spreading out, forming a circle around the two acolytes. Their mouths were sealed, their teeth visible through the stretched skin. Do they eat, or are they sustained on witchcraft? They were armed with short spears and clumsy axes. Ashok counted six of them in total. Their appearance was unnatural, Thin as untouchables, they had no meat to them, but they didn't move like they were malnourished. They had no eyes, just round indentations in the sick fabric of their faces, but they seemed to have no problem seeing. Strangely enough, Ashok still wasn't afraid, though he knew he probably should have been. This was the sort of thing stories were told about to scare children, or so Ashok had been told, because he really couldn't remember his own childhood. He raised his voice and shouted, We're from the Protector Order, on official business. It's illegal to block our way. Move aside. Rather than answer, the things kept trudging through the snow toward them. They're abominations, Devadas hissed. I don't think they obey the law. Everything must obey, or deal with the consequences. What are they? I don't know. Witchcraft. You're the one that never forgets the lessons. Devadas drew his sword. The blade was southern, heavy, and forward-curving, designed for chopping off limbs. He took one last look at their fleeing companion, probably debating if he should follow. But he turned back to the fight. Damned idiot, Yug. There's nothing down that mountain but starvation. We get to the heart, or we die. Get ready. Ashok drew his own sword. It felt clumsy in the thick fur mitten. But he was afraid to take it off, because his skin would doubtlessly freeze to the handle, and that would probably be worse. They were on a rocky shelf, fifty feet wide, next to a wall of dark stone. Fallen snow was being blown about by the howling wind. As the blue-skinned monsters kept spreading out around them, Ashok realized that the leather strap protecting his eyes from the glare also took away much of his peripheral vision. They were in the shade of the rock, so he tore the strap off. Much better. The creatures were moving inward, crouched now, weapons clutched in their long blue fingers. Even with the wind, the snow here was still knee-deep, so their movements were awkward, and each step required them to lift their legs high 
to crunch back down through the hard snow. Maneuvering would be difficult. Outnumbered like this, if he and Devadas fell, they were as good as dead. Devadas realized the same thing. Get back to back. Ashok moved around him, stomping down snow, trying to make a beaten area so he could have some footing. Try to look intimidating. He wasn't sure how to do that. Ashok was tall for his age, but he didn't feel particularly intimidating being outnumbered three to one by magical abominations. At his back, Ashok could feel Devadas shaking with nerves and anticipation. Personally, he still felt no fear. His only wish was that he had his real sword instead of this inferior thing. And Gruvedal could sweep the creatures from the mountain with ease. The monsters stopped. The acolytes were in the middle of a 20-foot circle, hemmed in by the blue creature's rough iron weapons. Ashok was surprised by how quiet the moment was. Then they attacked. The monsters didn't communicate in any discernible way, but they moved as one. The things lurched forward. He couldn't even call it a charge, more of a methodical approach through the deep snow, really. He'd been hoping they would clump up and get in each other's way like a proper mob, but they were coordinated, as a few moved to attack while the others held back, waiting for an opportunity to strike. A spear was thrust his way. Ashok turned it aside with the flat of his blade and then countered. The creature was bigger and had far more reach, so only the tip of his sword sunk into the thing's torso. It pulled back noiselessly. Another swung an axe at his head. Ashok parried it aside, then ran his sword down the handle, raising a cloud of splinters and then dropping one of the thing's fingers into the snow. That one also pulled away without a sound. The rest of them kept coming. One creature lifted its axe overhead almost leisurely. Ashok lunged forward to drive his blade deep into the thing's guts. Straight and broad, his sword was designed for thrusting. A good puncture from a two-inch blade would take the fight out of any man. But the axe kept rising. Ashok turned the blade hard, ripped it out the side and barely got out of the way as the axe was driven through the snow and into the rock below. Snow was flying between the sharpened edges. The noise of steel striking iron reverberated off the great stone wall. Devadas grunted as he was cut, but Ashok turned and ran that creature through the ribs before it could follow up. It put one hand on his shoulder and shoved him away. His sword came out, clean, with not a drop of blood to be seen. The two of them were turning, meeting attack after attack. Devadas lowered his body and swung around to strike the monster closest to Ashok in the leg, while Ashok attacked over Devadas' shoulder and punctured a creature's neck. The attack stopped. His pulse was pounding in his ears. His breath was coming out in gouts of hot steam. There wasn't enough air. Ashok looked around, realized that all of the creatures had pulled back a few steps, as if collecting themselves. They weren't so much as shaking, and he couldn't tell if they were even breathing at all. Despite receiving several lethal blows, all six of them were still standing. They're not dying, Ashok stated. I can see that, Devadas snapped. Devadas had lopped one of their hands off. The severed appendage was lying in the trampled snow at his feet, blue fingers still twitching, so he kicked it away in disgust. The monster who'd lost the hand went over, picked it up, and casually stuck it inside its furs for safekeeping. Perhaps it would reattach it later somehow. Ashok really didn't know that much about magical abominations. Run for the heart. I'll hold them off, Devadas ordered. Ashok didn't dignify that with a reply. He may have been young, but he'd done nothing but train his whole life. He was a son of the highest caste, and he'd be damned if he was going to run from witchcraft. Everything has a weakness. They just had to find it. The creatures came at them again. A spear was flung at him. He reacted and swatted it out of the air. A moment later, another almost hit Devadas in the back, but Ashok barely managed to knock it aside as well. Then the axes were falling, and they seemed ever faster this time. 
he moved between them, stabbing and slashing. A lucky move put him beneath a swing, and Ashok responded with a draw cut so deep into the monster's abdomen that it would have split any regular man nearly in two. That monster calmly walked away, letting another take its place. Ashok swung for a faceless skull, but it was mutely blocked by a raised axe. He stepped into it and drove the tip through the space where the mouth would have been. He shoved until the steel came out the back of its head and knocked its fur hood off. He shoved until the guard smacked into its stretchy membrane. It still tried to hit him, but he got his other hand up and grabbed onto the axe handle. What does it take to kill you? Another monster stepped up to stab Ashok. Devadas intercepted it with a swing so hard that it left the spear splintered and useless. Then Devadas shoulder-checked the creature into the snow. Everything had a weakness. Gravity was one of them. Except for birds. But luckily, they weren't fighting birds. Breaking formation, Ashok shouted. The two of them were hardly a formation, but that's what they'd been taught to say in training when moving apart. His opponent was bigger and heavier than he was, but Ashok had driven a sword through its face, and that gave him considerable leverage. He jerked the sword to the side, twisting its head around, and then he shoved. The two of them crashed through the crowd, sliding across the snow toward the edge of the cliff. At the last second, Ashok yanked back hard, pulling his sword free. The creature slipped on the ice and went to its knees, but didn't go over the edge. So Ashok kicked it in the chest and sent it rolling over the side. It disappeared in a cloud of ice crystals. He turned back just in time to catch the tip of a spear as it plunged through his thick coat. There was a flash of heat as the edge sliced through his skin. Rolling around the attack, Ashok hacked that creature in the neck. The soft flesh parted, but he still wouldn't let go of the spear. His boots began sliding across the packed snow as it shoved him toward the edge of the cliff. Ashok snarled and hacked it in the neck again and again. The rubbery substance came apart beneath the well-honed blade until its head parted from the neck and hung there, attached only by a flap of skin. It still didn't die. Move right, Devadas shouted. Ashok didn't hesitate. He threw his body to the side, spear still twisted through his clothing, as Devadas crashed into the monster's back, sending it flying off the ledge and into space. The spear was yanked out slicing a new cut across Ashok's body, just above the first. The remaining monsters pulled away again, observing. Ashok could feel the blood running down his stomach. Devadas was grimacing and there was blood running down his scalp from where he'd been struck. They were both panting. He was thankful for the chance to catch his breath. What little of it was available up here. Two down, four to go, Ashok said. Ideas? Hack them to bits, toss the bits over the side. He'd been hoping for something better. Good plan. The monsters closed on them a third time. Either he was tiring faster than expected, or they'd grown much faster. The monsters seemed far more confident, and their weapon handling was vastly improved. There was nothing clumsy about them now. A minute of furious combat seemed to stretch on forever. Both sides fought with the savagery worthy of senior protectors. Ashok was only able to get in a single solid hit, slicing his blade through a few ribs before the things pulled back again. That one stood there, silently mocking him. Apparently, they didn't have lungs either. Devadas had done better than Ashok had, and had carved a massive chunk from one of the creature's legs. The monster was balancing itself with its spear, Broken leg dangling in the snow, seemingly as calm as Ashok was. Then he looked over his shoulder to find that they'd been herded to the edge of the cliff. They're toying with us, Devadas gasped. Sure enough, when they came for the fourth time, the creatures struck like lightning. Their strength was incredible. Too fast. Devadas's legs were swept out from under him by a whirling spear shaft, 
The monster smoothly recovered, raised the spear, and launched it at Ashok. Devadas swung from the ground and intercepted the killing blow, saving his life again. Ashok stabbed at that monster, but a jolt of pain ran up his arm as his sword was batted brutally aside by another. Ashok fought with all the skill and savagery he could muster, until the flat of an axe bruised his ribs and knocked the thin air from his lungs. Something else hit him on the hip, cracking bone and forcing him down. He swung for a monster's legs, but it leapt effortlessly over the flashing blade. Nothing is that fast. Something clubbed him over the head, and by the time the lights quit flashing behind his eyes, the monster he'd attacked had stepped on his sword blade, pinning it to the ice. It was curious. He'd always thought that, at the moment of death, he'd finally know what it was like to feel fear like everyone else. But there was nothing. Ashok tried to draw his knife, but a spearhead was shoved through his hood and pressed against his throat. Strange. He'd always thought that pushed to this point, he'd feel something. Enough! The cold iron departed, ripping away a bit of his skin with it. The monsters pulled back again across the small battleground of packed snow, leaving the two acolytes lying there, struggling to breathe. Devadas got to his feet first. He grabbed Ashok by the shoulder and roughly hauled him upright. One of his legs was nothing but tingling, non-responsive pain. Involuntary tears were forming in his eyes and freezing there. He had to lean against Devadas to keep from falling over. Neither of them could stand on their own, but they both raised their swords. The four remaining monsters silently parted to make way for another figure. This one was also dressed in thick furs, and Ashok's first thought was that the creature's chief had arrived to finish them. Then the newcomer pushed back his hood, revealing dark human skin rather than a stretched blue skull. Stand down, acolytes. We start them tame for the challengers. Making it to the fourth incarnation is impressive, but I don't believe you would last more than a few seconds of their fifth. Ashok recognized the speaker. He was tall and thin, but wiry strong, with graying hair and a weathered face. Ashok blinked his eyes and shook his head, but the man was still there. Are my eyes broken? He didn't think he'd been struck in the head, or maybe the lack of air was getting to him, because Ratul, Lord Protector of the Order, couldn't be here. Ratul had been at the base of the mountain to see them off. Master, why, how, Devada stammered, how did you, silence. The swordmaster was known as Ratul without mercy, and he was more frightening than any witchcraft-fueled abominations. You've kept me waiting longer than expected, but I must admit that was an acceptable demonstration. I'm not ashamed to have taught you. Coming from Ratul, that was an incredible compliment, and Ashok was pleased to receive it. His companion, however, was a bit more emotional in his response. This was part of the test. We nearly died. What kind of brain-damaged fish-eater came up with this? Devadas shouted as he wiped the blood from his face. Then he realized how unacceptable that emotional outburst was and lowered his head. Forgive me, Lord Protector. Ratul had a way of glaring with his narrow, heavy-lidded eyes that struck fear into all the acolytes capable of feeling such things. You're lucky, Devadas. Long ago, I cursed my instructor on this very spot for the very same reason. Offense has been given, but not taken. You have faced the guardians of the heart. Don't worry about the two you tossed over the side. They'll climb back up shortly. If these had been men, you might have won. Enough questions for now. Ratul put his hood back up and began walking away. Come with me. You have passed... What about Ugantar? Devadas looked in the direction the other acolyte had fled. He didn't pass. The mountain can have him.
That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and the podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the primordial, multidimensional call of absolute soul-rending malice, bottled up with Diet Mountain Dew and mixed with the Sword of Michael and garnished with the eye patch of Henry Morgan. Plus, thanks, praise, and plot is to Larry Correa, author of Target Rich Environment. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.